0: A long time ago, so long ago, in fact, that hardly anybody remembers this time, there was a city that was run by a king. And this king was fair-minded, he was kind to his people, and he ran the city well, and he was loved by all of the citizens. He was such a good king, in fact, that cities from all around would come to him and request that he lead their city as well. This was unprecedented. This didn't happen in this time. So he wasn't really a a warlord, but in this way, in the way of caring for his citizens and showing love to them, his territory grew. It quickly became a nation, and this nation quickly expanded to encompass the vast majority of the known world. To most, the spread of this king's rule was a unifying blessing, but to a few, it seemed like it was the spread of a virus, and seeing their own takeover as inevitable, one king decided to mount an offensive against this giant nation. And to his surprise, he actually won. Now, how did he win before a battle had even been had? This is a good question. The king of the large country, you see, was not in the habit of violence or wartime atrocities. So seeing evil coming against him on the horizon, he simply gave his people a choice. They could fight to remain in the prosperous kingdom, or they could not. For some, it was fear of threat. For some, it was curiosity of what a new kingdom might be like. And for some, it was just simply self-destructive human tendencies towards rebellion. Not everyone agreed to bow to this new king, however. Many felt sick to the heart with the idea of leaving this good and prosperous nation in favor of something that they weren't sure of. But if the whole nation left... Where would these people be but scattered if they didn't go with them? So in the end, the good and prosperous king was forced out of his nation by the tyrant on the offensive and all of the people came under a new power. Before leaving for unknown lands, however, the prosperous king addressed his people. He looked at them all sternly, but lovingly, and he promised that one day when they grew to regret their decision to come under this new authority, he would be back because everything he did was only out of love for them, but he would never force prosperity on the people that he loved so much. And things went pretty well for a while. Life was completely different under this new king, but the people felt a certain freedom to pursue the things that they wanted as individuals, rather than always having to live and be in line with seeking the good of the whole nation. Over time, however, this created citizens that became selfish and backbiting and spiteful and hateful towards one another. The people grew to hate each other and more and more division came to this once great nation until all that was really left was a splintered world left by an oppressor and led by him. But make no mistake, he did still lead. For years and years, this evil king continued to rule and even the whisper of the former king seemed to die out though they did not die completely those who had been sick to the heart at the king's leaving passed on stories of their time of prosperity under him and continued to repeat his promise to their children and their children that one day he would be back knowing that things would not go well for them if they followed the leader that they now found themselves under time passed by and more and more people grew more and more miserable while fewer and fewer believed the promise of the old king. Many even relegated him to myth and legend, not even completely certain that he existed because surely if he had, he'd be back by now. But some remained watchful and after long days of fighting for their keep, they would stand at the city gate on the border wall of the nation and they would look at the distant lands hoping to catch a glimpse of the fabled king returning. It seemed like it was never going to happen and things continued to grow more and more miserable until one day when things had reached well past the breaking point, a battle horn was blown in the distance and an army appeared on the horizon led by none other than the former prosperous king. Now the king's power was so great that his army completely encompassed the walls of this nation city. And heartbreaking though it was for him to do to the people that he loved so much, he began to besiege his former nation, cutting off supply lines and making it very clear that victory had been won. He called out to the despot king who appeared over the wall of the city, and he said to him in no uncertain terms that his rule was over. Victory had been attained, and he had returned to bring prosperity back to the nation that he loved. He had hated all these years to watch from afar as his people lived increasingly horrible lives, growing to hate one another and sinking deeper and deeper into depravity. However, as he had promised before, he was not going to force prosperity on anybody. He then was obliged to allow the people some time to consider his victory. They could make a choice at this point, just like they could make a choice before. They could follow him or they could continue to follow their tyrant king into destruction knowing that they had already been defeated. And as all members of the city discussed this, they found out that there were three sets of people that were forming, three ideas that people seemed to ascribe to. There were those who had continued to keep the memory of the king alive. Their hearts had never really left him. Even though they were living with a different people, even though, sure, they benefited under the the evil king sometimes in seeking their own desires, their hearts had never left the old king. And the sickness of their heart that they felt at the king's leaving had remained over the years, and they had passed that sickness on to their children and their children's children. These were wholeheartedly with the prosperous king, and their hearts were no longer sick because they saw that he was finally back, and they were hopeful for the future for the first time in an age. Then there were those who had forgotten the old king and were skeptical of real change after living in misery for so long. Their hope was gone, and it was hard to imagine a better life actually being possible after all this time. Then there were those who had grown bitter and spiteful. Some began remembering the old king fondly after he had first left, but when he didn't return soon, they grew bitter of him. They grew to hate him and were not pleased to see him now. They thought, if he really loved us, he would have come back then. He would have come a lot sooner. These ones enjoyed in a twisted way the ability they had under the tyrant king to seek after their own pleasure, and they were now the ones sick to the heart of the idea of a change of life. After a while, the king called out to his people behind the wall, and he demanded that they come out of the city and bow to him. Unfortunately, only a few trickled out of the city at this time. You would think so many more based on how miserable that nation was, but only a few came out of the city gates. But even though it was only a few, the king greeted them as if it was every last person he had ever hoped would show up. He greeted them with so much love and enthusiasm that the people began to weep because they had never experienced love like this for the ones that had been born under the tyrant king and to the ones that remembered the old king, they didn't think a love like this was possible anymore. And so all of them wept together. They then asked their king, shall we turn and fight the nation who has rejected you? To which he replied, not today, But soon, there are still many in the city that I know will come out, and I will continue to call to them. But in the meantime, we are all the kingdom that I need. I have won an incredible victory today. And as the people looked around at their small numbers, they thought, how is this an incredible victory? How am I a part of something incredible when truly I'm looking and it doesn't feel incredible? It doesn't seem incredible. This seems like defeat. But he said, I have won an incredible victory today. Through you, I will once again show to those miserable citizens just how amazing life can be. Rather than waging war and destroying lives, they will once again come out asking me to rule them when they see the prosperity that we share together. Now, when you hear this story, I apologize for it being forever long, but it kind of had to be to fit all the things in that I needed uh, to be in there. When you hear this story, you might see that a good portion of the parallels are there that I intended. You might, you might recognize those parallels. You could see, okay, obviously, the good king is Christ, right? We recognize him as a good king. He is a good king. So obviously, he is that in the story. You might recognize that sin, death, Satan, our adversary, are the tyrant king who we, the citizens, have chosen to follow in every act of rebellion we continue to commit, And so far, you're absolutely right. These are the parallels that I intended for this story. However, you might look at the time span of this story and conclude that this covers the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And in this, you would be wrong. This story covers all of human history up until the point of Christ's first coming only. And you might ask, but Micah, how is that possible? Because clearly he came as a conquering king in that part of the story. And if he was a conquering king, we know that that was only related to his second coming. So how can you claim that this was at his first? I would just say that I disagree with you. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. The fact that Jesus Christ came at his first coming as a conquering king. Something that we don't often think about. And something we repeat often enough saying that he didn't come as a conquering king. That we might actually start to believe it. And this could affect our faith. You see, at the beginning of time, all of the world was God's. He worked with all the people, right? It doesn't mean that they obeyed him perfectly. It doesn't mean that they weren't rebellious. But he worked with all of them. Up until the point of the flood, when he said, my spirit will no longer strive with mankind. But even then, rather than give up the world, he set apart one family and destroyed the rest. So even at that point, when the world was down to just one tiny family of eight, the whole world belonged to God because it was just eight people, and they all belonged to him. It wasn't actually until the time of the Tower of Babel that he chose a people for himself, and he turned the rest of the world over to human depravity and the worship of false gods. It wasn't until that time, though. And this is represented by the prosperous king giving his people a choice. Right? We've been given free will, as we all have through all of human existence. And then these people in the nation continued to choose evil, so he allowed them to be led by the tyrant. This this is the parallel in that story. However, even Israel, his chosen people, right? The people he said, I will set you apart. You will be my chosen nation. They ended up choosing the way of depravity too. These are the people that didn't want to give up the king, but they saw the way of the world and they followed that. We'll just be lost if we don't go the way of everybody else. So we have to go and bow to this new king. And they did. But even when they turned from him, they still whispered his name. The legend still grew they still saw a time when he would come back and redeem redeem them of the tyrant of sin and death. So though God had left them, they still believed, at least culturally, that they were God's people deep down. Then came Christ's first coming, which people claim was not as a conquering king, but only as a suffering servant. So where did this idea come from? That Jesus Christ didn't come as a conquering king, he only came as a suffering servant. Based on what I've studied, there's a certain... I think I can narrow this down to basically a question we ask of of why the Jewish people did not accept him as Messiah, right? Why would they not accept him when clearly he fulfilled so much of the Old Testament, when clearly everything that was written before pointed to him and he fulfilled all of that? How could they see his life and not accept him? Then we say, well, they believed that he was coming as a conquering king and instead he came as a suffering servant and not a conquering king So they just missed the mark a little bit. There's a certain field within biblical studies called hermeneutics, and basically this deals with how we read scripture. And it deals in two things. One is observation, and one is interpretation. Observation is just a cold, hard reading of scripture. When we read that Jesus wept, what do we observe there? We read that Jesus Christ shed human tears right that's just an observation i'm not making any conclusions from that i'm not making any interpretation but we could interpret from that that he was sad that he had something in his eye at that moment or maybe that he wept with joy right if we're not looking at the observation closely enough and looking at the context of the verse we could conclude all of these things with correct or false interpretation it's a little bit more fluid and this is where we get into arguments and this is where we get into a little bit of trouble with other people when we don't share the same interpretation A good example of this is when Jesus said, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Now we can observe that Jesus is giving a teaching. We can observe that he commands not responding with violence in this situation. However, when we go to the interpretation, things get a little bit more dicey. Some people will take this and they'll interpret it as, Jesus was the ultimate pacifist. He never, ever, ever believed that war or violence was necessary At all. He was the ultimate pacifist, always a peacemaker. Despite places like Revelation 17, 14 stating that the earth would wage war with him at his return and he would triumph over them. Clearly, that person believes that violence is sometimes necessary. You can't claim that that person is the ultimate pacifist. But they'll read this and they'll they'll interpret it a wrong way because they're not looking at observation closely enough. They'll say, well, Christ wasn't physically aggressive, He didn't want his disciples to fight on his behalf at his arrest. He so often preached love for his enemies. So that way, the maxim still stands, Christ was the ultimate pacifist. And I think we do the exact same thing when we ask the question, why did the Jews not believe his claim that he was the Messiah? Didn't they have all of the evidence right in front of them? Didn't he fulfill prophecy after prophecy, dealing with what the Messiah was coming to do? These are all things we observe that he did. But we conclude through interpretation that the reason they didn't believe him was because they were expecting a conquering king and he came only as a suffering servant. Now it's true that those who killed him did not recognize him as king and they condemned him to suffer. That did happen. I don't want to say that Christ didn't come as a suffering servant because he very clearly did. But to say that he didn't come as a conquering king seems to go directly against what Jesus Christ said about himself and what he came for. I believe that to get a better understanding of how Christ did in fact come as a conquering king, we have to understand a bit about how kings handled themselves at the time of Christ, when he was alive in his human physical form, and also the history that he would have understood as he fulfilled some of these things. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36, this is the account of Assyria coming against Jerusalem. And they had basically torn a path all the way through Judea, taking over city after city after city, and finally they had reached the heartland. They had reached Jerusalem, and they were at the city gates. Uh, we'll start reading Isaiah 36, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakie with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So Rabshaki is a leader underneath Sennacherib, king of Assyria, right? He's sent as like a regent to go and do his bidding. It almost like insults Israel, that or insults Judah, that they just weren't even worth sending the king himself. You just go deal with it. And we'll see that the Rabshakie was incredibly offensive and insulting. To Jerusalem. It says here, uh, continuing on in that sentence, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakee said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to, who, to all who trust in him. So Judah, seeing that they were really, really up against it, seeing that Assyria is coming up to go and just wipe them out. Looked back to Egypt to protect them. One of the most evil and heinous nations ever, but they had a good military. So they thought, okay, this might work out for us. So they reached out to Egypt, and this is what um, the Rabshiki here is insulting them for. Wow, you trusted in Egypt, but that's just gonna come back to hurt you because if you think they have your well-being in mind, that is not what they have in mind. They are they are going to pierce you. You're leaning on them like a staff, but that staff will break and pierce your hand. It's gonna come back to bite you. So then he says this in verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now this is just misunderstanding. The rapture sees that Hezekiah took down the high places of false worship in all of Judah. And he says, you got rid of all your gods. How do you trust in your God when you got, basically got rid of all of them? because they believed in one God and Hezekiah restored that worship to the nation. So clearly the Rabshakee doesn't understand that we don't need high places, we don't need altars, we don't need pagan worship in order to look for protection or defense of our nations. Verse 8 then says, Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. This is just a little jab, a little jab at Judah saying, Hey, come and join us. We will take you under our wing. You can be Assyrians, and we'll even give you horses so you can come and fight for us. Although you probably don't even have enough people because we just destroyed so many of them on the way. Just a little jab right at them. I can't imagine a nation being like, yeah, that sounds like a good deal after you just insulted me. That sounds good. Almost you'd get a little angry and be maybe desirous of going to fight one last fight to the death. But this was standard protocol for war. War in the ancient world was not a scorched earth policy. In fact, when it was scorched earth, that was the exception to the rule, never the rule itself. When an invader came in, they wanted to spare as much of the territory as possible so that they could utilize it. If they wiped out every person, who would be their subjects? If they wiped out every field, what would they grow? What would they profit from gaining that land if it was just trash now? So to this end, they would lay siege to a city. They would surround it, cut off its supply lines, and basically starve it out. So no one goes in, no one goes out, and after a time, they would give opportunity for surrender. And this is what's happening here. They had laid siege to the city. They had destroyed all the lesser cities who didn't bow down to them. And they said, okay, this is your chance, Jerusalem. You have no food coming to you. You have no water coming to you. You can either starve and die out, and we'll wait, and we're going to take your city. Or you can come and fight us, and we'll kill you and take your city. Or, this might be more prosperous for you, join the Assyrians. All you have to do is pay a tribute, send your people to war for us, become an Assyrian, follow our laws, follow our rules. So they're, they're setting up this, this deal for Judah, saying, this seems like it would be more profitable. You can die or you can live. And this was conquering in the ancient world. Conquering kings were in the business of territory expansion and subjugating people. Utter destruction was only ever necessary if the people refused to surrender. And we do have examples of this all throughout history. The king of Tyre, when Alexander the Great came to take over them, they did not surrender. They believed they were well fortified enough. So Alexander the Great built this awesome land bridge out to the island of Tyre and just wiped them completely out. But it does happen that sometimes a nation says, we're not giving over to you. And so they're utterly utterly destroyed. But this has always been the exception and not the rule for ancient warfare. And this is why I wrote the story in the beginning that in the way that I did. The tyrant king allowed for the people to make up their minds about joining him. The only difference is that the good king did not send out his people to fight because he allowed the citizens to make their own decision, right? This is representative of the free will that God gives to us. He's not going to force prosperity on us if we want to turn from him and bow down to the king of sin and death, which we often do. But also, you'll notice the good king, when he came back to conquer... He offered up the exact same thing at his coming. He did not need to destroy every single person in order to conquer or to win victory. He won a great victory without killing anybody. He just laid siege and then extended the offer of surrender to this nation, and that was enough. Matthew McIntosh, who's a teacher of ancient and medieval history, states this about ancient warfare. He says, ancient strategy focused broadly on the twin goals of convincing the enemy that that continued war was more costly than submitting and of making the most gain possible from war. Now, this isn't to say that there was never any violence at all. But if they fought everybody and killed them all, who would be subject? If they took no slaves, who would work the land? What profit would they gain from this? Even in Rome, which occupied Judah during Christ's time, we can see that the Jews were allowed to continue to work They were allowed to continue to pay tribute to Caesar. They were allowed to continue to even join their military if they needed to. They got a lot of good rights by becoming Roman, right? Essentially, they didn't get full citizenship. Um, That cost a lot of money, but they were able to continue to live. So even the example of conquering people that came in at the time of Judah did not conquer in the way that they just decimated everybody and destroyed everything. So it's interesting to me to think that the Pharisees of the time or the Jews of the time would have thought that a conquering Messiah would come and wipe out everybody. Because really, all throughout history, conquering kings didn't come to wipe out everybody. They came to subjugate a people. So with this understanding of where we've adopted the interpretation that Christ did not come as a conquering king, along with a clear understanding of what a conquering king at this time period actually did, Let's look at Christ's own life and his words and then see what he actually claimed about himself. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew ten thirty four says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Christ's first coming, this is what he claims about what he came to do. He came to divide the people into those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ just as I told it in the story earlier. A sword is an offensive weapon. This is a weapon of a conqueror. This is not a weapon just used to kill people, but to divide people and to conquer people. That's what Christ is saying that he came to do, divide and to conquer. John 16, 33, you don't have to turn there, it's very brief, but it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What does that mean if not he has conquered the world? What does that mean if not I have victory over the world? And what does it mean to take heart? Because if just he did it and he didn't do it for us, what does that do for us? Why should we take heart at his overcoming unless it means our victory as well? Think back to the concept of ancient warfare. The king comes to the wall of the city And he's already defeated it. Whether it was militarily defeated it or through siege warfare, the victory has already been decided. All that's to be decided now is will you carry on fighting and lose or will you submit to authority of the one who just conquered you? John 19.30 states the last words of Jesus Christ. He said, it is finished. This is not a statement of defeat said by a weak man at the last moment of his life. This is a statement of victory. What he is saying here is that it has been accomplished, it has been fulfilled, and it has been won. He has conquered. Now most of prophecy is full of what I've touched on in previous messages, um, something called the already but the not yet, right? There are two aspects to it. And the kingdom of God is no different. We can see all throughout the Bible where Christ says simultaneously the kingdom of God is at hand and also you will not enter the kingdom of God unless these things apply to you. So clearly there is a coming kingdom, but there's also a kingdom at hand. How how is this possible? Well, when a few trickled out of the walls of the city, they were submitting to the good and the prosperous king. This is us. We are those who trickle out of the city and should be living under the banner of the kingdom of God today. That kingdom is our kingdom right now. It's not the one we're waiting for. That's just the place. That's just when we get to be reunited with him. But right now, we are subjects of Jesus Christ the king, who conquered when he came first to this earth. Of course, the entire kingdom is not established. The good king looks back at the corrupt city and says that he knows more will come out of that place. He's waiting. He wants more to come out of the city. He knows they will. And that's what we're doing here, right? We should be living as examples today to show others, just like ancient Israel did, right? They were chosen as a model nation so that all other nations would look to them and say, wow, the nation that God leads, something is special there. The same way people should be looking to us today outside of the city walls led by a tyrant king of sin and death and say, wow, the nation that God controls, that is a blessed nation. That is a nation worth joining. That is a king worth following. That's what we are right now. Or do we still believe that we're living under the same tyrant king because Christ came as the suffering servant and not the conquering king? He had to have come as both. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we'll start reading in verse 26. This is after Christ's crucifixion. Um, His disciples have seen him a number of times, but Thomas has yet to see the risen risen Christ yet. So he has uh, pronounced a a few doubts or a few qualifications to what he needs to believe in order to know that Christ has actually risen. And so a few times Christ has come to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. This time, though, Thomas is there, and it's it's like Christ just knew it. He's like, I'm coming just for Thomas. So John 20, verse 26, it says, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. And reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas here says, my Lord and my God. You can imagine him kneeling at this moment before his king. The king who might not have conquered Rome, as he probably expected he would have. But his king nonetheless, the king that came to conquer him. This is who he's bowing to. The kingdom of God is not simply a place that we're looking forward to seeing someday. It's not just the walls that we're looking for. It's not just the mansions that Christ went to prepare for us. It's presence with God. Absolutely, we look forward to that. But the kingdom of God is made up of the people of God living under the authority of God. And in this way, it's here right now. Or it can be if we internalize that. Even while it's not here yet. Right? That aspect of prophecy, the already but the not yet. Are we living that already or are we just waiting for the not yet? Will Christ be our king or is he our king right now? Certainly, the Jews in Jesus' time who did not believe in him as the Messiah were awaiting a conquering king. They were waiting to be freed from Roman oppression, they were waiting for a savior who would come and physically uh, free the nation. And that's okay. But if we continue to make the claim that he, in fact, did not come as a conquering king and won't until his second coming, we might inadvertently be denying the victory that he already won over our own lives. Because the war is over. He said it's finished. There is no possible way right now that the tyrant king can win. He can't. The king is at the gate, and he's calling out to his people to come out to him. We've already done that. We're waiting on more people, but the king has conquered. There's no way the tyrant king can win. All that's left to decide is whether or not we will submit to that victory or commit ourselves to destruction by following evil. That's it. We might have only been a few that trickled out of the walls of the city, ready to pledge ourselves to the king who conquered us, but the rest are not lost yet. I'm going to reread um, the ending of my story here. It says, after a while, the king called out to his people from behind the wall, demanding that they come out of the city and bow to him. Though only a few trickled out of the city gates, that's us, he greeted them with such love and enthusiasm that the people began to weep. Some had never experienced love like this, having been born under the tyrant king. Some had forgotten that it could ever exist. They then asked their king, Shall we turn and fight the nation who has rejected you? To which he replied, Not today. But soon, there are still many in the city that I know will come out, and I will continue to call to them. But in the meantime, we are all the kingdom that I need. I have won an incredible victory today. Through you, I will once again show to those miserable citizens just how amazing life can be. Rather than waging war and destroying lives, they will once again come out asking me to rule them when they see the prosperity that we share together. The king has come and he has conquered. Not Rome, not despot kings, not people that he has to destroy, but you and me. The tyrant will be dealt with. Those who refuse to bow down to the good and prosperous king will meet their end at some future time. But there are still more in the city who will come out when they see what he is doing with us. So be patient. Don't minimize the first coming of Jesus Christ. He is our conquering King and He is our God. Long live the King.